The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Standard Issue for All Women Hello and welcome to episode 194 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am very much enjoying my daily Wordle, Quordle and Wargle brain exercises. Now Mickey, since this is the second time we're recording this because of technical (laughs) problems, I've since gone on and discovered what Wargle is. Have I ruined your life slash made it better? But well, yesterday you made a point and feel free to make it again. If you're used to doing Wordle and then you discover Wargle, which is Wordle but with six letters, you just go, I can't think of any six letter words. Exactly the same thing that happened to me. I thought, I'm going to have to get a dictionary out. (laughs) I literally don't know any six letter words. And also it has an intrinsic problem built into it, which is the more letters there are in a word, the more likely you are to use the same letter twice. Yes. And, you know, when you're guessing... At the start, you're not going to do that. You're not going to guess the same letter twice, are you? I didn't at first because I've been very well trained by Wordle. But now, just fuck it, sometimes I do. Because my theme with Wordle and with Wurgle is to do something that relates to the world in general as a start word or my life uh, specifically. So this morning, which is March the 8th, I did woman for my beginning Wordle and I did female for my beginning Wurgle because it's International Women's Day. It is. Good for you. (laughs) I just always do the same words. Which is? Uh, Generally, beast is the one I go with because it's got an E, an A and an S in it and a T. And also that is your nickname. True. Uh, The beast. (laughs) I tend to go with heart. Heart's quite a good one. Mm -hmm. Pearl is quite a good one. Ought is also a good one. Apparently, according to data, because of course people have researched how to do Wordle better, trace and crate, which are exactly the same letters in a different order, are excellent start words. I don't understand this, how to win Wordle, because having got it in two on a number of occasions, it actually just feels a bit hollow. It feels like a lucky guess. It's actually better when you're on the last one and you're like, oh, no, I've only got one more guess. That's actually way more fun and experience than it is to accidentally guess it right the second time. You fucking love living on the edge, don't you, Hannah Dunleavy? (laughs) You know what they say, Jen? If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. (laughs) That's certainly what my cat feels about how I sleep at night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're getting to that. I I just see that on a a biker's T-shirt once. I, I, I don't know if it's actually actually a proper quote i think it might be timothy leary but anyway speaking of sleeping with people i'm hannah dunleavy <laughs> that was such a weird segue <laughs> timothy leary talking of taking up more space that's that's the segue i was searching for i'm hannah dunleavy and this weekend someone barged down a door in order to sleep with me and by someone the world's best potato yeah. elsie bulldog she loves Hannah. She loves you so much. I said your name and she just woke up. 
I opened my eyes and I thought, why is that door open? I don't remember that door opening. And then I thought, why am I right on the edge of this bed? Almost <laughs> about to topple off. And I turned over and there she was, just, just sprawled <laughs> out across the rest of the bed. She's quite compact, but she is made of dark matter. Yeah. When she got onto the bed, how did that not wake you up? Because uh, as Mickey says, she is a unit. <laughs> Joan's preferred method of getting onto my bed is rather than actually jump off onto the bed, she jumps onto the windowsill and then onto the top of the wardrobe and then she launches herself <laughs> onto the bed. Can you just hear... Du, 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 Ducks under a laser. And so therefore, the thud of Elsie landing is nothing compared to the thud of Joan landing from a great height, which I have now become accustomed to. I feel really stressed thinking about that, to be honest. (laughs) Like, really stressed. Clarky gets on the bed like a normal cat, but when he comes in the cat flap, because the cat flap is really high up the door, I don't know why, he clearly has to do a run and jump through it like a, like he's jumping through a hoop of fire. <laughs> and so he's always so excited to have made it that no matter what time it is, he just runs through the house going, Hello! Hello! I'm here! And he jumps on the bed going, Mama, I made it! Excited and slightly singed. Yes. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and I think I don't have a cold anymore. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. How long before you catch another one, do you think? I would say approximately five hours, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens after she comes home from nursery. Little germ farms. Mm. Very cute little germ farms. True, true. Coming up, I talk to comedian Hayley Ellis about touring with the boss. That's our boss, not Bruce Springsteen, just to be clear. Bringing up a baby in a pandemic and what she learned about comedy when she couldn't do it. I chat to Jessica Turner and Amara Karen, stars of the new play Bloody Difficult Women, about being powerful women and making Theresa May sympathetic. Mm. And in Jenny of the Rocks, I'm talking loads of medals. And in Rated or Dated, we're watching Stand By Me. You are welcome. But first, happy belated International Women's Day. But when is International Vampire Slayers Day? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush! Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we applaud Hugh Grant's ongoing, if inadvertent, bid for Prime Minister. This week, he's told <laughs> Nigel Farage to go fuck himself. Clearly a policy we can all get behind. I endorse this message. Absolutely. Alas, though, we are still stuck with the professional incompetent that is Boris Johnson, endlessly parroting that the UK is leading global action from the front, when in fact we're so far behind we've barely reached the starting block. For the love of Christ, will someone just chuck a tea towel over his cage? (laughs) Apparently not, for here he is in the headlines again, urging world leaders to ensure Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine fails. While I assume the world leaders in question are going, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) Like the EU, remember the EU, which has given Ukrainian refugees the right to live and work in the European Union for up to three years. Or Poland, which has taken in almost 800,000 Ukrainian refugees. Or Romania, which has taken a quarter of a million. Whereas this week, the UK refused 150 Ukrainians entry from Calais and has granted just 50 visas out of a promised 200,000. Fuck's sake. It's telling, in fact, that refugees get no mention at all in a six-point plan to support Ukraine that Johnson set out over the weekend in the New York Times. I'm not even going to read the points out, Jen. Not least because it took me a while to take them in as I was so distracted by the photo someone actively chose 
of Johnson staring wistfully into the distance after what was presumably a particularly nasty hedge backwards incident. And, you know, they're not awful. An international humanitarian coalition increased sanctions on Moscow. But there is nothing new on there. Nothing that other countries haven't already been doing. And yet, the whole six-point thing reeks, look at us doing stuff. Given our PM loves a hashtagable three-word slogan, Mark Cockerton over on Twitter suggested a doozy. Get Russia done. <laughs> and to be honest, the Conservatives may as well have released that as the plan. <laughs> While it's no secret that I'm a big believer in fuck the Tories, I can't get over our government using the word humanitarian and those 50 visas. 1.7 million people have fled Ukraine in just 10 days and the UK has okayed 50 visas. Mm. And while I've no doubt this will have increased from the data released on Monday morning to when this podcast goes live on Wednesday morning, so will the number of people applying. The world is watching, said Johnson, who I'm guessing thinks irony is a bit like leddy or aluminium-y. Oh, fucking hell. When it will have increased to 70 visas. It's, (laughs) oh man, it's embarrassing. It's just, it's cringeworthy, isn't it? It's like... We were having a conversation off air with Hannah just now and it's just like, you know, I think we all agree we don't necessarily want the British government to say, right, let's bomb Putin then. Like, you know, that's too scary for me to comprehend. Yeah, that's not something we should do. There are things that we can do to help, like take in some fucking refugees, you know, give them somewhere to live. There are things that we can do to help Ukraine, which, you know, I think he actually said in this fucking article... The people of Ukraine will judge us. Yes, they will. They will. <laughs> and rightfully so. Yes. Jen, have you thought about releasing some sort of press release that has the point <laughs> support Ukraine's defence of itself? Do you think maybe, yeah? I think Hannah suggested maybe we go outside eight o'clock on a Thursday and clap Ukraine. You know how I feel about that. So does Helen from Merthyr Tidville. I <laughs> um, wonder where she stands on this instantly. Anyway, yeah, it's it's awful, isn't it? Really bad, really embarrassing, really fucking basic stuff. You know, I think it's great that we're all uniting to condemn Putin and what he's doing, but I can't help but feel that is an avenue we've sort of exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, pretty quickly. So, let's think outside the box, guys. What else can we do? It's, It's like every strategy they ever publish isn't it we will do this big sweeping societal thing absolutely no flesh on any bones no information as to like what it is they'll actually do to make that dream a reality like just nothing it's just it's bullshit it's just bullshit there's so much anger this week just for a change anyway (laughs) and so In the week that we celebrate International Women's Day, and I know Mick is going to talk about this a bit more in a minute, among the celebrations of women-owned businesses, celebrity panels and inspirational memes, we bring you news that will surprise absolutely no one. News that men continue to commit acts of violence against women and that the legal system of England and Wales is woefully ill-prepared to deal with it. Oh, no shit, Sherlock. This week we are talking about Gracie Spinks, a 23-year-old killed by her stalker, 35-year-old Michael Sellers. He was also her supervisor at work while she fed her horse one morning. 
Sellers became infatuated with Gracie after the pair went on a handful of dates before she called things off and after receiving hundreds of messages from Sellers and eventually finding him waiting for her where she kept her horse, Gracie reported him to her employers and he was fired. A few months later, she was fatally stabbed in the neck and Sellers was also found dead in a nearby field. Police believe that Sellers killed her. It later transpired that a rucksack belonging to Sellers containing weapons and Viagra had been found close to the field where Gracie was found killed and handed in to police about a month before her death. Mm. A police sergeant and two constables were served misconduct notices last year and the force is being investigated for its handling of Gracie's original complaint against Sellers. Now, Gracie's parents are campaigning for more funding to be allocated to investigating stalking claims. Last month, Derbyshire Constabulary announced it would recruit a stalking coordinator, but Gracie's parents say that this should be happening across the force in all constabularies, and indeed, this is not a problem that's going away. Last year, the police said there had been a significant rise in stalking cases, while a BBC FOI request revealed that the number of arrests grew at half the rate of the number of offences reported between 2019 and 2020. Women who were interviewed by the BBC at the time said that the reactions they faced when reporting stalking incidents to the police ranged from disbelief to, in one case, being told that they should be flattered. Fucking hell. Yeah. And hey, guess what, Mick? While the UK law doesn't currently recognise stalking within existing relationships, analysis by the Crown Prosecution Service in 2020 showed that 84% of stalking offences in the same year were committed by ex-partners, three quarters of whom had already been reported for domestic abuse during the relationship. Yes. I'm guessing, like me, you're not that surprised by this, Mick? Absolutely not. You know, coercive control is usually, it's been very much practiced during that relationship. And when the perpetrator feels triggered by someone leaving or the relationship ending, then that's when they can put them to good use, in inverted commas, and continue keeping an eye on someone. Stalking seems to have been one of those things that when you say it out loud and explain what it is, it feels weird that the police wouldn't understand how terrifying that can be for someone and yet Mm. it's it's been dismissed for years that's not the first time you know i know you said that in one case and that's that specific report that someone oh you should be flattered oh you know it's that whole Mm. idea that goes hand in hand with romantic gestures so we turned up outside a house with a piano and started playing her favorites fuck off mate get off my property (laughs) and take your piano with you Yeah, it's... Oh, God. But, you know, in a rom-com, that would be seen as our hero trying to win back the love who is deservedly his. And we're we're sold this bullshit all the time and it undermines the seriousness of offences such as stalking. Yeah, agreed. Would you like to hear some good news, Mick? Yeah, please stop me talking about how angry everything makes me. (laughs) Okay. Well, this week we're saying better late than never to Bristol Cathedral who announced their intention to remove a plaque celebrating the ordination of women. What? What? Don't, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. I promise you good news, good news you shall have. They're replacing it with a new plaque celebrating the ordination of women. Uh... <laughs> yeah, scratch his head. But why? Well, Mick, 
According to the notice by Bristol Cathedral announcing the planned works, the reason that the original plaque is being replaced is that it did not mention any of the women who were ordained. Instead, <laughs> instead, it mentioned the men who, the men that, it, this is uh, what the notice says, the men that ordained them. Oh, oh sweet fancy Christ. <laughs> well, you know what they say. In front of every great bishop, etc., etc. Yeah. <laughs> Bonus piece of information contained in the notice, which was flagged on Twitter by a Mark Walton: the new plaque will be slightly bigger than the old. Oh well, <laughs> well, that's that. That's good then. That's good. What an oversight that initial yeah. plaque was. They've fundamentally failed in their remit there, haven't they? That's a shame. Oh well, they're fixing it now. Good news. <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where women get a whole day to... Oh, sorry, let me just check my notes. Practice the Wakanda Forever salute? <laughs> She's doing it right now, listener. I can't stop doing it. I feel inspired by what you're doing, Nick. <laughs> Very inspired. Yep, Tuesday the 8th of March was International Women's Day and its theme was hashtag break the bias. Break the bias. Yeah, it it feels very much (laughs) like saying this year, the theme for the day of the year, which aims to focus global attention on gender equality, bias, stereotypes and discrimination, is to focus global attention (laughs) on gender inequality, bias, stereotypes and discrimination. Mm. And actually, hashtag break the bias is fairly similar to last year's hashtag choose to challenge. What were we choosing to challenge? Oh, you know, gender inequality, bias, stereotypes (laughs) and discrimination. It is, as Hannah pointed out, very much the equivalent of Gladys Lehman, Kirstie Alley's character in Drop Dead Gorgeous, theming the pageants by American. USA is A-OK and American. Maybe don't have a theme and just get on with it is what I'm saying. But, bonus, this year's theme came with a pose. I know. Gotta think of the gram and the tickety-tock women. Encouraging women to cross their arms into a combative X, as if to ward off patriarchal vampires. <laughs> sure. <laughs> to quote Caroline Criado Perez, after a decade of seeing hashtag activism achieve little more than moral licensing, I am all out of patience for words and poses that cost nothing and deliver as little. All I want for International Women's Day are some tangible goals and the detailed evidence-based and crucially well-funded plans to realise them. Mick, why the fuck have you put International Women's Day in Sexism of the Week, though, you monster? You might well be thinking. Well, it's here because I am cross that women were told to use our one day a year to raise awareness against bias, take action for equality, like we're not already doing that on a daily basis. And to be honest, as much as I love showcasing a great woman doing great things, hello and welcome to the Standard Issue podcast, I, like CCP, feel a bit jaded. I can give you a standing ovation, Mick. I agree. I 100% agree. I've always really enjoyed International Women's Day and being like, yay, the sisterhood, blah, blah, blah. But then I remember that that's literally what we do every day for work. As nice as that is, don't get me wrong. Uh-huh. But like, yeah, I'm fucking bored. I'm so, I'm just, I'm so over it. I'm so over it. If you want to do something nice for International Women's Day, any men who happen to be listening, and probably if you are listening to this podcast, in fairness, you're probably very much on the same page mm-hmm. as us, I would think. If you want to do something nice, 
If like Tony down the pub says something that you think, oh Tony, that's a bit dodgy. I don't. Th- oh, Tony's a bit of a prick. Tell Tony he's a prick and call him out on it if he says something dodgy about women. If you want to do something nice for women on International Women's Day, I don't want to see you saying how much you love your mum. Although, like, great if you love your mum, that's all cool. Tell Tony he's a prick. That's what you can do for International Women's Day. I'm joined by Jessica Turner. Hello. And Amara Karen. Hi. Hi, Jen. Stars of the new play, Bloody Difficult Women. Hello, ladies. Thank you for joining me. Not at all. Nice to be here. I kind of want to say it in that bloody difficult women way because it is obviously based on a specific quote. So I wondered if you could just tell us, to start off with, a little bit about the play and what we can expect to see. It's written by Tim Walker, who's a journalist, who's had many years of being involved in politics and writing about politics and, in fact, is a friend of Gina Miller, who is one of the two major protagonists in the play. Basically, it's about Theresa May and Gina Miller at a certain period in our recent history, which was the triggering of Article 50. And Gina Miller, who Amara plays, is challenging the government because they intend to trigger Article 50, the start of the Brexit process, without going to Parliament. So it all centres around that, that issue which happened 2016, wasn't mm-hmm. it, Amara? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think the play, though, is a psychological battle between these two women. Yes. And they're both obsessed and they both have ideals. We mm. should, should just say, actually, that the other woman is Theresa May. Yes. Um, so, yeah. That I'm playing. So yes. Gina May and Theresa May. May. And, yes, and we get to battle it out on stage. Indeed. Uh, in this play, which is a joy. But it, it's about these two women and their, their struggle being... Women in a in a man's world, and that's sort of what the title refers to. The yes. Ken, Kenneth Clark quote, he apparently called Theresa May a bloody difficult woman under his breath. He didn't he didn't mean for people to hear it. These two women have been kind of outsiders in their in their worlds, and I think that's what the play kind of illuminates, yes. as well as the fact they're idealists. You know, they're, they're conviction politicians. They're they're passionate people. Gina Miller has just recently become a politician because she just set up a political party. But at the time of Brexit, she wasn't. She was a campaigner. Mm. I think what what Tim, the writer, wanted to do was find what their similarities were, where they had mm. some kind of connection in their in their careers and their lives, and where they differed. And in fact, what he's done in the play is that he's brought them together at the end of the play. As far as we know, they never actually met. So, mm-hmm. yes, this drama strays into, you know, the artist's imagination. Uh, okay. But it highlights lots of things. I mean, it, the power of the press and the uh, long-standing power of, uh, that men have over women in the world that they inhabit. Exactly. And also the press is interesting because in this play, we get to learn about how close the press, some people in the press, some editors are, to the leaders of our country. Yes. And we we see how much access they have and we see that toxic relationship, a manipulative relationship in this case. You know, th- this play brings that out in a, in a new, different way from Tim's point of view. Tim Walker, the writer, he's experienced working with this particular editor, Paul Dacre, and he knows mm. and therefore he's used his experience, his personal experience uh, to write this. But it, it does highlight the pressures these two women have mm. from 
the people in the press and the toxic nature of that and the kind of misogyny of people in the press and the media and and how the press uh, fueled the toxic language that erupted during Brexit in 2016-2017. So I want to address something head-on, which is that obviously this play is about two women and two quite divisive women in their own way. You know, we're, we're living in a very divisive time did you at any point have any reservations, you know, about playing women who had been written by a man? That Didn't expect a, your question to go that direction. That is an interesting question. <laughs> I think the play has taken... Uh, I workshopped it two years ago. And in those two years, there's been, you know, it's it's morphed and it's changed and it's changed emphasis. And I think when I was first involved in it, I think I would have been much more aware that it was written by a man for women, but a woman, a man not necessarily understanding women particularly. Mm. And the script that we have now is, I think, is much more empathetic and sympathetic and wise about women and their interior. I think in this business we're used to... Sure. You know, the balance of male playwrights. So it's not something that you think, well, I'm not going to play a woman because it's been written by a man. <laughs> you wouldn't work. Uh, you <laughs> would never work. Just to be clear, I, I don't think that men should never write women and women should never write men. I just because they are such divisive characters and they have been yeah. subject to so much misogyny, I think. Yes. But Tim has been friends with Gina Miller mm. and her husband Miller for many years. So actually he wouldn't have probably written this play without the friendship and knowledge he has of them and her and that that very particular insight he has into her and him so he is placed in a very special position to write he's yes he writes it with immense sympathy and heart Mm -hmm. actually where the women are concerned Mm. so i mean they're both pretty formidable women was that fun to play I don't know what it is about me, but I do get to play a lot of formidable women <laughs> because I'm not really a formidable person, but it's something, oh, perhaps I am. Emma is shaking her finger there, by the way. She is. Um, um, Jess is formidable. Oh, uh, there you go. On and off stage. <laughs> it's definitely fun to play, but it's not hugely different from roles I've had to play because I have had to play quite strong women in the past. So, but yes, I mean, a lot of fun and a challenge to play people that actually exist and mm. are in the public's consciousness and, right. you know, the, mm. their image is very, very strong in people's minds. Right. Yeah. So you feel that huge responsibility mm. to play that character and get the kind of the essence of them without neither of us are doing an impersonation of these these women. And also, you know, it's Tim Walker's Theresa May and it's Tim Walker's Gina Miller. It is a subjective take on these characters yeah. and it could be and it has to be. And he is saying something with this play. He's not just, it's not a documentary where he's just putting it everything out there and asking you to make up your mind. He has sort of making a point about what these women are doing and saying and what the situation yeah. is, is, is about and the environment that they're in. So it mm-hmm. does make the challenge slightly different. It's not just playing Theresa May or Gina Miller. It's, Tim Walker's version in this particular play, in this situation. So I would imagine a play like this would appeal maybe more if you've got like, you know, two diametrically opposed 
teams here. You've got Team Gina, you've got Team Teresa. <laughs> I would imagine that this play might appeal more, perhaps, to the Team Gina crowd. I mean, yeah, I think it's going to because... That's where Tim's sympathies are. Yes, and she's inspiring anyway. And it's a bit of a David and Goliath story, actually, as well. It's this woman who came and successfully sued Theresa May's government twice and then Boris Johnson's government. She is formidable. She is extraordinary. And, you know, Tim is putting her in a play and on stage because she deserves it, you know. That's absolutely true. But he hasn't written Theresa and her story as the equal and opposite bad you know exactly <laughs> exactly yes um, yeah yeah you know he's tried to she, find a balance between yes. the two women and i have to say tim the fantastic writer that tim is he has given us rounded characters you know to, we can see theresa may's flaws and we see gina miller's flaws and her eccentricities and i can tell you it would have been so boring to play gina miller as this heroine and you know, it's been really fun to choose not to meet her and, you know, explore things. The that, nuances. The of nuances. The play. And, yeah. and again, you know, bring out the, what's dramatically interesting in the play. And I think that's really exciting that he's, he's, he's made complex characters. So it's not just black and white, as, as Jess is saying. But the reason May has vulnerabilities and flaws and issues and a blind spot, but she's also formidable and extraordinary. And, we do miss Theresa May. I think the audience will miss Theresa May as a prime minister. Oh, yeah, I think they probably um, do. <laughs> they probably do anyway, but they will after this play as well. You know. So, well, I wanted brilliant. to ask you because I have actually met Gina Miller. I've interviewed her for this very podcast. What I found most fascinating about her was that she seems to have been driven to do this very bold, kind of mad thing, really, purely driven by what she believes to be the right thing and you know she's fortunate you know she has the means to do it basically she's able to to take the government to you know to sue the government I wondered what do you think Emma is the most sort of fascinating or interesting thing about her well a couple of years ago when I saw her hit the scene as it were like everybody else saw her I was stunned and amazed and confused like you were and also worried for her because the toxic um, threats, abuse, and the personal security she then had to take on because, it, you know, there were death threats yeah. to, to her and her family and her children. So, but I didn't know behind the, the face, if you see what I mean. I didn't know her personal life. I didn't know her, you know, her challenges in life. And then recently, obviously, she published her biography and she spoke about what she's been through. And I remember when I was invited to audition for the play, reading an interview and I just wept because I was so moved by her courage and her story. And that's the thing that made me want to play this role. I think seeing where she's come from and where she has got to, that for me is moving. It's not about successfully suing the government. It's about all the abuse that she's faced in the past, the personal tragedies and the courage, she's, she's always shown courage, it seems to me. I found that very, very moving. That I hope the play also brings out. I mean, she's also insane. I've not obviously <laughs> met her, but to, to take this on, to take these fights on. Yes, she has the means to do it, but 
the he abuse. doesn't have to do it. Yeah, it's it's he doesn't have to do it yeah. exactly. But I what I feel so excited about um, in terms of doing this play right now is that it feels like she's being vindicated because of what is happening with Partygate. People are sick of our politicians being corrupt. They are sick of our politicians making laws and breaking their own laws. And I think now Gina Miller does not look so pedantic. She looks like someone who we need in this country, someone who has a moral framework on which the country can uh, And that's grow. where the two women come together, actually. It's, it's where they find common ground. Jessica, you are playing Theresa May, Team Theresa. I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I am politically not aligned with Theresa May or, or the things that she did in her career. But I do find myself watching her occasionally in the Commons now and just being like, get in, Theresa! Like, yeah, well done! And just sort of thinking, like, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, like, I'm so pleased for you that you get the opportunity to do that. That aside, I, d- I don't think she will go down in history as a particularly successful Prime Minister on any side of the political debate. I wondered, did you feel sympathy for her? I think it's sad for her that people had sympathy for her because of her situation rather than because of what she believed in. But I do think that she, I mean, and I think it's so clear now that she has integrity and that, that what she believed in, she believed in with conviction because that is how she has come to, you know, over many years, she, she grew up in the business, as it were, you know, she, she was stuffing envelopes when she was 12 for the Conservative Party. She, and she went right through working at grassroots and worked her way up. And she really believes and believed in what she was doing. I think she had enormous resilience and courage during the time that she was Prime Minister because she was beset on all sides by the naysayers and the the gainsayers who were all working against her from from the word go. I mean, she was sort of being elbowed out from the moment she started. And I think she has enormous strength. I mean, incredible strength. And then she still hasn't given up. She's still working as a backbencher and she still, and as you say, she now goes into the Commons and she says what she thinks because she's freed up to do that. And yes, I think a lot of people think, well, you know, we lost something there. Mm. Also, I have to say, this question she asked in PMQs, which you're alluding to, I think, to Boris Johnson, was just beautiful. Very interesting watching her. I've watched a lot of footage, as you can imagine, and and read her biography. And and that's how you find sympathy with a character, even if you're not on the same political (laughs) divide as as they are. You, you, You find a way of connecting to them internally. And on the front bench, when she was prime minister, it was extraordinary how she seemed to almost physically hide behind the men on on the front when she was mm. sitting down. You know, she'd, she'd have these besuited men either side of her and she'd sort of huddle behind them in a very strange, you know, it was almost as if she needed that kind of, I, I don't know, it was like some kind of guard around her. And then she'd gird herself and stand up and, you know, up to the dispatch box. But I just thought that that physical language was really quite interesting. The similarities are interesting in terms of them being both conviction politicians, unlike now we have someone who will just say whatever you want him to say. Whereas Theresa May... Or whatever you don't want and not care. 
Or yeah, do but... they will not care? But the point is, he's yeah. an opportunist prime minister. And but this Theresa May and, and Gina Miller actually have convictions, actually believe in something. Mm. And that's the point from which they work. Whereas this prime minister could flip flop from one end of the political spectrum to the, to the polar opposite. Any given for his own gain, for his own gain at any particular point. One of the points that you've sort of alluded to a couple of times already is that the play is sort of trying to draw out actually that these women have more in common than you might think. Well, the first thing is, I, you know, having watched a lot of Gina Miller's interviews and things like that, she's amazing at reaching across the aisle, as it were. She will have an interview with somebody or uh, be on a panel with someone. And even though they completely disagree politically, she can win people over and people do respect her and have said so. You know, they've said, I don't agree with Gina politically, but... You know, I do respect her and she does have humour and, you know, she's warm. She's she's She seems like a really, really lovely person and a laugh. So those are the differences. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, Teresa clearly doesn't have the same, you know, social ease that Gina has. No, I mean, I think that I think that there aren't many similarities, but I think what we find at the end of the play is this notion that they both care deeply about society and and truth and honesty and integrity and yes they both had difficult backgrounds they've they've both had challenges to their their early development I suppose as younger people so they've both had to hang on to an inner strength in order to overcome those circumstances albeit very different circumstances so, yes, I think those are the, the similarities. And they've both, you know, been beset by, by men who've tried to get in the way of what they want to achieve. And, and another obvious similarity is that they're both political animals. You know, they both w- yes. want power. They're both politicians. So Gina Miller is friends with Tim Walker, who wrote it. So is she going to come and watch, do you think? She's coming on press night oh. with her <sighs> Miller. And um, we are thrilled and excited that she's coming and we hope she loves it amazing is that scary yeah yeah Yeah, a little bit a little bit okay she's very nice i've heard from everyone she's really lovely i mean it's just it's just a bit mad isn't it it's so fluttering on the one hand because she's tim walker's muse i suppose but it's also kind of mad to see your self portrayed in a play i mean i can't imagine what what that must be like must be an extraordinary process it's extraordinary Jessica, Theresa May probably doesn't listen to this podcast, to be honest, but if she's listening and she wants to come and watch, when and where can she see Bloody Difficult Women? We're playing at the Riverside Studios, which is in Hammersmith, close to Hammersmith Tube, and looks out over, as we're looking now, over the river. And we open on the 1st of March, that's the press night, and we play for three weeks after that, till the 26th of March. Excellent. And are you guys on any kind of social media where we could keep an eye on, on what you're doing? Yes. I'm on at Amara Karen on Twitter. And I'm on Instagram at Amara Karen. Jessica? And a big fat thanks for me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's lovely to chat to you. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by comedian Hayley Ellis. Hello. Hello. Hayley deserves a special prize because (laughs) I just did the most terrible trick on her, which was I got the days wrong and then I sent her a message saying, why aren't you in this meeting? And you rushed here 
and you've got like a kid and a job and everything. So I'm sure you were thinking, oh, Hayley, you've messed this up. Have you messed this up? When in fact, it was me who messed it up. Yeah, it was totally, I was like, oh God, this is classic, classic Alice, but it wasn't. No, it was me. Yeah, 24 hours early, this interview <laughs> is happening and I am grateful for it. But that also shows you how little I am working at the minute that I can adapt. There you go. <laughs> Well, I wanted to talk to you about the last time I saw you in the flesh back, I think it was May last year, was at that absolutely fucking mental gig that you and Sarah did in Cambridge. And it was oh, the God. first gig back after, well, after lockdown. It was the first gig for you. It was the first comedy gig for Cambridge. And... I don't know how I can quite explain to people the atmosphere. It was really, really wild. You were like miners who'd been stuck in a mine for, <laughs> for a year and we'd been sitting waiting and you'd emerged out into the light. It was so nice to to have that because we'd done those sort of, you know, Zoom gigs, which are lovely and everything, but it's not quite like getting a reaction yeah. in a room. Yeah, it's lovely. Real nice adrenaline rush. How's the rest of the tour going? Because you are touring still with the boss, aren't you? Yeah, it's great. She's brilliant. It's just lovely for me. Her audiences are lovely. The gigs are lovely. We have fun together. Yeah, I'm having a blast. Yeah, definitely. Being a support act of someone the size of Sarah, I could see an argument for saying that it's an easy job, but I could see an argument for saying that it's a really hard job. Which one is it? I guess I'm very lucky because the way that Sarah does it, she'll go on and she'll have a chat to the audience. and they So they go, oh, yeah, she's in the room. This is great. This is who we're here to see. And uh, she sort of says, you know, this is my friend and, and they're funny. So they sort of relax a little bit. So that's set up so nicely. It's set up for me to have like a really nice gig and her audiences are lovely. And I have done gigs, you know, tour support where it hasn't been as easy as that. Just because different elements, sometimes you have to go on cold, you know, you, you, mm. you're the first thing they see and they're like, where's the person we want to see? And things like that. And, you know, that's not being disrespectful to the other people who've done support, tour support because just different ways for different people. So yeah, it, it can be that you've got to be there to sort of, gear them up and they're not there to see you so it can be difficult in that way where you have to sort of get them on side and do a good job so they go oh yeah they are actually funny this is fine because a lot of the time they're like who is this who is this person I think as well I've seen people who don't sort of consider that the show's actually started until the main act is on the stage yeah there's still quite a lot of moving in your seats having a bit of chit chat handing out sweets or whatever and you think we're actually supposed to be watching this bit this isn't like light intermission music yeah It's like the janitor just sweeping the stage before the main one comes on. But yeah, so it can be, I mean, obviously the other ones I've done for Sarah have been delightful and just brilliant fun. But yeah, it can be tricky as well at the same time, like you say, because they're not there to see you. So you've sort of got to win them round. If they haven't seen you before, they're like, come on, make me laugh. It's a bloody great ever for you though, right? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, getting seen by loads of people that haven't seen me, you know. So yeah, it's getting a whole new audience for me as well, which is really nice. Because you're actually... Sorry, say what you're going to say. I was going to say, I think you were going to say what I was going to say anyway, because I'm doing a little tour myself. (laughs) And a lot of the people who are coming from that tour are people who've seen me support Sarah. So obviously I wouldn't have that audience if I hadn't been doing tour support for Sarah. Your next show is Nottingham at the end of April. Am I right? You are right. Oh, hang on. (laughs) I've got to check. I don't know. No, it's Coventry. Coventry Coventry next, but that's in March. But yeah, I'm doing a second date, Hannah. First one sold out. Plank. Um <laughs> I added a second date and uh, and then I'm doing Nottingham, yeah, in April. Excellent. Tell me about your show because, well, actually, maybe we should start with this. The first time you and I talked about you being on this podcast, I don't know when it was, but I do know that we were in a restaurant somewhere in London. <laughs> and we were like, why have you never been on the podcast? 
And I said, oh, I'll send you a note. And then what happened was pretty soon after that, you had a baby. And then pretty soon after that, the world fell apart. Yeah. And can I just ask, have we checked whether those two things are actually linked? (laughs) Is is this like a Rosemary's baby situation going on? Do we know that for certain? Uh, Yeah. As the world fell apart and my womb fell out. Yeah, it was. It was literally I had the baby. And then two weeks later, we went into lockdown. Very ill-timed, but also good. I know that's terrible, actually. I shouldn't really say that, actually, but good because I got a lot of time with my daughter, but that I wouldn't have had. Do you feel like you've had a different experience of motherhood or do you think that eventually it all kind of boils down to the same thing? Some problems, I'm guessing, are universal. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've got nothing to compare it to, but what I would say is it was quite lonely. I couldn't go to those baby groups that I would have gone mm. to or, or, like, met other... And all my friends... So I'm in Liverpool at the minute, but all my friends are, like, Manchester-based. So any friends with children, I could have maybe spoke to them or gone around saying, oh, you know, is this normal, blah, blah, blah. I could do it on the phone, obviously, but I didn't have that support network to see visually. My mum lives in North Wales, and obviously they were really strict as well on lockdown. Yeah. So my mum didn't see the baby till she was, like, you know, um, spend any time with her for, like, six months or so. Oh. But, yeah, so that was quite isolating. But then on the other hand, I had all this time because I was going to start work after, like... like because obviously I don't know, I've never had a baby before. I was like, mm. oh yeah, I can go back to work after two hours, you know. Um, <laughs> still got the placenta attached. Oh yeah, I can go back. So I was probably going to go back too early. And uh, because of the pandemic, I couldn't anyway, which mm. was good because I wouldn't have wanted to. And we got extra time with my partner because he was furloughed for a little bit as well. So we got that extra time as well. So that was good. I wonder if maybe having a baby during that period kind of isolated you from the worst fears about the pandemic because you had just <laughs> yeah. something else on all the time. Yeah, something to keep me occupied. Yeah, I mean, definitely, because if I wasn't, if I hadn't had my baby, I would have had like, oh, just been like, oh, God, I've got nothing because my job was, you know, my everything. So like, yeah. and that was gone. So I couldn't like focus on that sort of worry about going, oh, what am I going to do? What if this doesn't come back? So yeah, I guess, yeah. I'm also curious about taking that long a break from comedy. What do you think you learned about it when you weren't doing it? That I missed it. <laughs> I think I took it for, but I think I took it for granted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because like, you know, sometimes, and, and you don't stand up yourself, you'll roll up and you'll be like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And then you get to the gig and you're like, oh, it's going to be awful. And then I do the gig and I'm like, oh, I love it. Yeah. And after I've done the gig, I, I'm like so happy and I love it. When I'm up there doing it, I love it. But the lead up to it, I was getting a bit like, not jaded, but a bit like, oh, it made me realise how much I missed it not doing it. Yeah. And how much my whole life sort of revolves around comedy. That's why I gave up because I just couldn't, I couldn't be on a diversion on the M6 at two o'clock in the morning anymore. <laughs> yeah. just, this is the thing. I just could no longer even cope with it. You start off, it's a bit of an adventure, then it's terrible. And then I, you just, you're just driving while crying. Just why is, yeah. this, why is this happening? You could just see <laughs> no, all of the available time you had to sleep before you went to your next job, just gone. And yeah, it was quite You should call your autobiography yeah. that, crying, driving and crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I did once? This is pre-baby. I was like, there was diversions on on probably the M6 on the way home. Yeah. And I'm terrible. Do you know when people say, how do you get to the gig? I just go, follow the sat-nav. I don't know what motorways have been on. I don't know anything. I just literally follow that sat-nav mm. to the gig. No idea what r- roads have been on. So on the way back, there's all diversions and my sat-nav hadn't rerouted a while ago. Following the diversions. And I think someone had moved the diversion. So it kept going. I kept going back in a circle. And I must have done it. It was like labyrinth. Do you know when the little oh, slug man. moves? Yeah. I, I must have been going around in a circle for like over an hour and I hadn't moved. It was, yeah. <laughs> I, I had a, a, an experience just before Christmas. I went to Northampton 
which is not that far from me. It's about an hour's drive to see Blue Orange, the play, because I'd interviewed Michael Balligan and uh, Giles Torreira for it. I so... thought you were going to say Blue then. I was going to say, oh, I didn't have you down as a Blue fan. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> All and right. I, and I'd had a lovely time. And exactly what you just said happened. Basically, the entire A4 team was shut for no reason. Yep. And the sat-nav would not acknowledge that it was shut or my phone wouldn't acknowledge. So it kept just trying to make me rejoin at various points. And it was pouring with rain and I'd been driving for about three hours and I was having to go down like these terrible Northamptonshire roads that basically two cars can't pass on. And at one point I got to a junction and I thought I could get on the A14 and it was shut. And I got out of my car and I stood in the rain and I just screamed, fuck, at the top of my At the Shawshank Redemption. (laughs) Exactly that. I was just like, why is this happening to me? And then I remembered that's what comedy was like, weirdly. That's what comedy was like. Do you know what? This is why podcasts are good for like driving. You can listen to something. But what another thing I've been doing as well, I've been listening to this um it's like a true crime podcast and it's not good for the brain because <laughs> I'm listening to it for like hours and hours and hours and then I get home and I'm like Googling claw hammers and things like that. Like I'm Googling all the rest of the information about the cases and then I can't sleep till like, and my partner's like, what are, you, what are you looking at? I'm like, this is a tragic event that happened 40 years ago. I'm looking at it at three in the morning because I've just got in and I've been listening to this yeah. stuff and the things of it. Oh my day. So yeah, yeah. need to listen to more standard issue. Yeah, not, um... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like you could listen to us moaning about traffic while in traffic. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I the perfect do. scenario. Throw meta podcasting. Tell me about your show. So my show is, it's just stand up really, but it's under the guise of a theme, which is becoming a new mum in a pandemic, but also becoming an older mum because I'm classed as a geriatric mum. So I'm in that band. They're not meant to say it anymore, but they still do. If you're over the age of 35, you're classed as a geriatric mum. If this makes you feel any better, every single woman I know who gave birth during the pandemic, which was actually a surprising amount, given that I thought all my friends had done with having their kids were all geriatric mums all first time mums all geriatric mums do you know why that is because you had to fuck your partner didn't you because there was nothing left to do (laughs) can't leave that in can we Uh... (laughs) we certainly can (laughs) my sex life was made illegal for about six months Hayley I'm glad other people were enjoying it (laughs) yeah well obviously because they're in my age range but yeah I think it's more and more common now and I think I'm glad I'm I'm an older mum in a way because I think like my mum was 23 and she had me and she'd already had one child under three it's so difficult so like I can't imagine having those pressures and being younger as well and also I'm very immature even now it's come at a good time I think yeah I think certainly when you get older you actually have more I mean not again not that I've had children but from the conversations I've had you actually have more idea about you understand your body a bit better and sort yeah. of what's happening to your body a bit better than probably my mum did when she was having us in her 20s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, like, you know, I know that I can cry in secret as well, so I know the places to go um, <laughs> that she won't see. But, yeah, I just feel like I feel I'm, I'm in a happier place, you know, at the age I am now. So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. But that's the show. It's just basically stand up all around that. So my experiences of becoming a new parent and becoming an older parent. And that's it, really. Well, I suppose the answer to the question I asked about whether actually motherhood is universal, whether it's happening in a pandemic, is probably answered by the fact that people are laughing at your jokes about it. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I say it was anyone else become a parent during the lockdown, there's lots of people that will be like, yeah, I did. And, and you know, and they're all, all of us sort of felt isolated in one way or another because I talk about in the show there was um 
because I didn't know anyone where I lived to go for like a walk with, you know, another mum or I didn't Mm. have that, that, I don't have that many friends where I live. So there's an app you can get to like meet mums. Yeah. And I talk about that and how ridiculous it is in the show and things like that. But it's all the ways that we're trying to like find your sort of tribe of people to help you get through the pandemic as well. Yeah. So it's all about that as well. Well, like I say, Jen was pregnant Mm. and a friend of mine was pregnant and one of my cousins was pregnant. And I was like, is this weird if I just give all of you each other your phone numbers so you ring each other? And they were like, no, it would be amazing. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I, I felt like, a, I don't know, is this none of my business? Should I stay out of this? But yeah. No, but that's like Match.com for like prego women, isn't it? That's what, what you've been like. I'm really good at putting friends together. I am like a, an Emma. Is she called Emma? Yeah, it is Emma, isn't it? The Jane Austen one. But for But for people that would get on rather than for people that they might marry. You should do that as like a... A trial, shouldn't you? You're in Liverpool. At... You're in yeah. Liverpool, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Who've you got for me? Who's on your books? Uh, <laughs> Dr. Susie Gage. She lives in Liverpool. She's a, a recent... doctor as well. She's a recent new mum. Yeah. I'll send you her details. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you can't give me a doctor because what I do, any of my friends are in the medical industry, I booty call them with problems. She is a, a doctor of biology, I think, rather than medicine. Oh, uh, well, yeah. she won't want to see my piles then, will she? <laughs> Nobody wants to see them. No. <laughs> I do like if you, if you got friends who are like doctors and they go oh, what do you think like there's one of my friends who went to uni with and every, she only ever really hears from me when I have a new rash that develops <laughs> you want to come and see me show here's my new rash but yeah that'd be lovely Hannah thanks again I don't know if I can leave this in but <laughs> somebody I know during lockdown had piles and I had to show them to a doctor on a video <laughs> just dangling them down <laughs> at least they wouldn't have to be in it they could just pull them Pull them into shop. I just had one question, which is, are you absolutely sure that guy is a doctor? Yeah. Because <laughs> it just sounds really weird. But yeah. And also, you could pretty much describe them and go, yeah, that's what that is. Yeah, exactly like... that. Maybe <laughs> the photo might be better. Exactly but... that. Exactly yeah. that. You don't need to see them live and uh only piles site. Yeah, I had them terrible when I was pregnant. Anyway, that's another show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not very good with bum stuff. How is it that I work with Sarah and Mickey? <laughs> you are mostly in the north, I know, in this tour. Is that for the, you know, just general convenience of being a working <laughs> Yeah, although I have tried. Don't get me wrong. I've got. A, I've just done a date in London. London's really hard to sell anyway. So um, I've done that to myself. I've got a date in London. And also I'm trying to do dates in Scotland. but um, So I'm trying to speak to venues at the minute to get them sorted. But yeah, mainly the ones that I can get back the same night from. Because my daughter's still only young and I'm the main sort of like, my partner works in the day, so I work of a night. So, yeah, so I need to get back, really. But at the same time, I am trying to expand it and add more dates. So, listen, if you you book a venue somewhere and you want me there, let me know. Yeah, they definitely should. So, tell me where people can find out more about where you are and what other stuff you're up to, Hayley. You can. I have a website, HayleyEllis.com. I'm on all the socials at Hales, H-A-Y-L-E-S underscore Ellis. There's another Hayley Ellis who's been taking my... Uh, tweets you know what she's like it's not me it's she said you want it you want my username she gets tweeted in the odd light Hayley Ellis is in scumforp in October and she's like who is this um it's like that John Lewis guy but on a slightly smaller scale a lot smaller she gets maybe one or two a year if that Hayley Ellis is on Leon C so yeah I'm on all the socials uh but if you go to HayleyEllis.com and uh click on the invisible man tab there's uh, a list of my links for my dates there and I will hopefully be coming somewhere near you soon Excellent. Do you want to meet again tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Or do you think we've covered it enough here now? Whatever you want to do, Hannah. (laughs) 
You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we take our place on the podium as we discuss all things women's sport. And I'm going to start with some men's sport in the same week as International Women's Day. I know, I'm sorry. So you might have heard me chatting in last week's Bush Telegraph about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how the sporting world had come together to condemn this. All sorts of events were being cancelled in response to this. Also, I mentioned that Roman Abramovich, the Russian oligarch owner of Chelsea Football Club, had said that he would hand over stewardship of the club to its charitable foundation. And since then, he said that the club is now up for sale. And reading between the lines, one assumes that that is to prevent the club from facing what would be potentially fairly dire consequences should he face the sanctions that our government keeps sort of like flirting with saying that Russian oligarchs in the UK are going to face. You know, we'll see. Now, most of you know how I feel about Chelsea, not the women's team or Emma Hayes, ofs, because I'm not a monster, but um, in, in case you don't, those feelings are overwhelmingly bad. However, I support a club, Charlton Athletic, who have faced the end of days more times than I care to remember. And usually for clubs, it's because of the dickheads in suits that terrible fortunes befall them. So I have felt quite strongly that Chelsea fans shouldn't have to face the consequences of what is a global diplomatic issue and completely out of their control. Listener, I felt like this until I heard Chelsea fans chanting the name of Roman Abramovich during what was supposed to be a show of solidarity with the people of Ukraine ahead of the match between Chelsea and Burnley last weekend. And now I'm like, mm, OK, dickheads, you're on your own. Look, I'm not saying all Chelsea fans are dickheads. Some of my best friends are Chelsea fans. That's actually not true, by the way. Um, they're not. And I know it's only a small minority of Chelsea fans, but yeah, there's there's no place for it. And most likely, if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to agree with me on that. But yeah, it's let's just let's just put it up there. Anyway, I want to launch seamlessly from this sadness into a story of joy, and that story is footballing nuns. That's the headline, the stand first, the pull quote and the article, Footballing Nuns. I'm talking about a squad of 18 nuns from congregations across Italy who, in response to Pope Francis's instructions that nuns need to get out more, formed the world's first ever national football team for nuns. The team members are aged between 27 and 52 and belong to a mix of nationalities. Apparently the main aim is to bring young people back into the church and to quote their coach Moreno Bucchianti, through football the nuns evangelise. I fucking love it. Let's head now for more good news back to Beijing and that is news from the Paralympics and the news is that on day four of the Winter Games Team GB have a solid five medals and we are in 11th place on the table. Congratulations to Neil Simpson who has bagged a bronze and a silver, Millie Knight with a bronze and Mena Fitzpatrick with a bronze and a silver. All of these medals are in the para-alpine skiing discipline. Where it's not going so well is in the mixed wheelchair curling. We're currently seventh place and we need to be in the top four to progress to the semi-final so fingers crossed. I'm very pleased to say that Ukraine are currently second on the table behind China and they have 17 medals including six golds and it's not like I think that improves the international situation and Ukraine do usually do quite well in these games because you know snow but I just think that tells us a lot about human spirit and I am here for it we've got another five days left four by the time you listen to this lots more to enjoy 
While we're on the subject of winter sports, curling champion Eve Muirhead has been giving interviews about her future and you might remember she underwent an operation on an arthritic hip a few years ago before going on to win the gold at this year's Winter Olympics. And she told BBC Scotland, can you ever go higher than getting an Olympic gold medal? No. So we'll see what happens. We'll take some time to celebrate this medal and then I guess we need to sit down and have a think about what happens going forward. I think she should celebrate for a year if she wants to but anyway that is all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah don't make me give you two for flinching. Hmm. I won't. (laughs) I'm scared. This week we watched A Cuddle in Film Form and Father God and Sonny Jesus. Is that needed right now? Stand By Me, released in the US in August 1986. And if anyone has forgotten how long Europe had to wait for films in the 1980s, it's worth pointing out that it came out on VHS in the US on the 19th of March 1987 and was only released in UK cinemas on the 13th of March, less than a week before. The release of the film in the US had ensured a lot of radio play for its theme tune, and to be clear, I am putting that in quotes, so it's worth pointing out that the re-released Benny King song was at number one in the UK and Ireland in February 1987, and we still hadn't seen the film! (laughs) Directed by Rob Reiner. We all know who that is, right? Yeah, Princess Bride, Spinal Tap, Joy. Great. It's based on The Body, the third novella in Stephen King's Different Seasons collection. We all know who Stephen King is, right? We do, yes. The first in that collection of four short stories, as the whole world knows, was made into the film The Shawshank Redemption. Quick pop quiz, can anyone name any of the other two stories in that collection? Nope. This feels like a, a test because we're having to re-record this because of technical difficulties. Yeah. So you told us the answer yesterday and my answer is still no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the other two were Apt Pupil, which was made into a film in 1998, and The Breathing Method, which for a long time was considered unfilmable, but is apparently now in pre-production. Stand By Me was originally slated to be directed by Adrian Lynn but he'd promised himself a holiday after making nine and a half weeks. He probably needed one, actually. And so he turned down the job and then went on to make Fatal Attraction. I mean, what do you think his Stand By Me would have looked like? Cherry-flavoured pears in all sorts of orifices I didn't want to see on screen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh. I think it'd certainly make the leeches seem seem a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of sucking. Mm. I'm sorry. (laughs) We've got more technical problems, I'm afraid. We're going to have to go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going through a tunnel. (laughs) Anywho, the film was a box office success, making $52 million from an $8 million budget and was nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay and two Golden Globes, one for Best Drama Motion Picture and one for Best Director. It won none of them. Nonetheless... Reiner considers it his best film and Stephen King considered it the first successful adaptation of anything he'd written, which, for context, means he thinks it's better than both The Shining and Carrie. The film continues to be a favourite for Gen Xers who grew up during a boom in the number of films with child protagonists. It's one of the minority of Stephen King's stories to be set outside of his home of Maine 
and was filmed in Brownsville, Oregon, which has held an annual Standby Me Day since 2007. Oh, do you know what do they do on Standby Me Day? Well, do they just can- stand by each other. Well, they kill a child and poke <laughs> it with a stick. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I don't support Standby Me Day. <laughs> In 2010, the 25th anniversary celebration of the filming of Stand By Me, it included a cast Q&A session, an amateur pie-eating contest, oh dear God, and an outdoor showing of the film. A rough summary of the plot for those who haven't seen it. When Gordy Lachance, played as an adult by Richard Dreyfus, sees a newspaper story about the death of one of his childhood friends, he begins to write the story of what happened when a local boy went missing in their town in 1959, when they were just 12. Fern, played by Jerry O'Connell, overhears his brother talking about finding the kid's body, and his friends decide to set off to find it and bring it home making themselves heroes in the process. His friends are the aforementioned Gordy, played by Will Wheaton, who has a different reason for going, even if he's not yet realised it, having recently lost his elder brother, played by John Cusack. Chris, played by River Phoenix, comes from a notorious local family and is desperate to leave. And Teddy, played by Corey Feldman, is physically and psychologically abused by his father, The four set off to walk the many miles to the site of the body but come into conflict with local gang leader and bully Ace, played by Kiefer Sutherland. So, lads, one of the most interesting things for me about Stand By Me, and indeed the body, is that even though it's set in the 1950s, a time that white America looks back on as a sort of haven of simplicity and happiness and childlike innocence, the kids here, well, three of them certainly, don't actually live in that world they are proper fucked up more fucked up than any kids in any 80s film i can think of and i think it makes this film almost entirely unique in that i really like all of them and i find them all to be very sympathetic i really like all four of the kids as well and i agree with what you've just said although even though they do have that trauma in their past the three out of four of them there is still that sort of trajectory in the film that by making this literal journey they are absolutely removing the blinkers of childhood and striding into adulthood as well with all of the shit that will entail including what the fuck happens to Gordy that means he moves from being Will Wheaton to looking like (laughs) Richard Dreyfus. no one knows but yeah I think they're all really sympathetic as well and I guess the unsympathetic characters are Ace and Eyeball and that gang of bellends yeah I think that 12 year olds should be sympathetic because they are children do you know what I mean like because it's it's never a 12 year old's fault if they're a bellend basically obviously I'm sure I've known some 12 year olds who are bellends I'm, I'm sure we all have so 12 year olds aren't always sympathetic but they should be but the other thing that occurred to me is that actually Stephen King writes the same kind of thing in It which obviously I've seen the original of and did not watch the remake of because no. <laughs> terrified forever Yes. Because clowns can fuck off. <laughs> yeah. I don't want a floaty clown that turns into a giant spider. Get no, away! thank you. Although I'd, I'd take the giant spider over the floaty clown. Anyway, there's the same thing in that. They're all... All of the kids in that are, are damaged in some way or other. They're all more adults than they should be because of horrible things that have happened to them. I just thought it was interesting. It occurred yeah. to me yesterday. Yeah. Do you have a favourite kid? I'm a big fan of Vern. I'm also a big fan of Vern, and selfishly, 
it's because I probably have been Vern in pretty much every friendship group I've ever been in. <laughs> Explain to me what you mean by that. I just think I'm the idiot in most yeah. of my friendship groups. And also, I mean, I'm sure we're going to get onto it. And one of the reasons you love Vern is the running and crying scene. As someone who's cried a lot and <laughs> run a lot, I can just acknowledge and feel sympathy for how hard that is. You can't breathe. It's impossible. <laughs> the addition of crying to any other activity just makes it hilarious like running and crying like he does here and i mean eddie murphy does so brilliant in bowfinger yeah. hilarious singing and crying there's a really <laughs> excellent episode of the sopranos where tony's singing uh the, a shy light song while crying at the same time and it's fucking hilarious <laughs> donald glover does talking and crying better than most oh, people in community. yeah in community oh, it's so yeah it's just so funny can i i just would like to say that uh, having done this for everyone so that you don't have to swimming and crying is just dangerous don't do that <laughs> jen do you have a favorite uh well yeah obviously it's gaudy because of the you know brother trauma yeah yeah but he's quite you know he's sweet as well and and, and you feel sorry for him don't you he's... that's it even teddy who is the, probably the most fucked up teddy duchamp is still sweet in his way he's still just a kid like they they rib each other in that way that we can all remember kids ribbing each other and it just just sort of walks that tightrope of maybe being a bit mean and maybe going a bit too far but they reel it in and they're just really yeah like hannah said really sympathetic even when if you look at him on paper he is a bit of an arsehole yeah i think it helps that teddy actually has a physical indication that he has a tough life whereas all the others i suppose it's uh it's a mental scar that they're carrying, whereas mm-hmm. Te- Teddy has a physical scar that you like see on the, you know, his ear is completely fucked yeah. you know because of his dad. So I've seen this film like I, I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen it, like a billion times. I don't remember his ear at all. I don't remember ever having seen the ear before. I absolutely agree with you, Jen, and I know about his ear because they talk about yeah. his ear, and this was like, yep, yeah, just hasn't registered. Really weird so weird but i think maybe that's testament to how good the character is is that you don't focus on that Mm. yeah but neither of you are really fans of stephen king as a role i knew knew because i'm a big windy wuss pants (laughs) like Vern, like Vern. (laughs) see oh god going back to Vern, i have to say his comic timing is fucking great and for a kid to have good comic timing is really you know special and when he it's his shift on watch and then there's a a, a branch cracks and then a frog croaks and he just goes <laughs> <laughs> his timing is just incredible yeah yeah I'm trying to think i mean i do like the shawshank redemption yeah, yeah i mean that's from the same set of books i always forget again because it's probably because it's this series but i always forget that that's stephen king because it's not the kind of stuff that I associate with Stephen King, because the kind of stuff I mm-hmm. associate with Stephen King, as I'm sure most people do, is a really fucking scary stuff that I don't yeah, like yeah. watching. King yeah. of horror, isn't he? Yeah. Stephen King of horror. But also, I can say that, no, I don't like Stephen King, but Stand By Me, which is Stephen King, has been one of my favourite films since I first saw it. I had it on VHS in one of those fancy cardboard <laughs> sleeves with the little magnety bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Let's talk about the fact there's basically no women in it. Hannah, there's basically no women in this? <laughs> Is that a problem? I don't think so. No. Because it's not about... It's about a group of 12-year-old boys and the 12-year-old boys probably wouldn't really have female friends in that way. So I, I think it's it's fine. Doesn't If they're all going to be heterosexual, they're on the cusp of discovering girls, aren't they, at yeah, 12? Yeah. They're on the cusp of just 
having them having us barge into their lives and fuck up all their friends. Talk about International but Women's Day, boring all of that bullshit. Shit. All of that, yeah. I hadn't seen this film for a while, despite the fact I probably watched it once a week for about two years. I find it difficult to watch now and there not be a shadow cast, something that makes it even sadder, even more sort of heart-rending to know that for a couple of people in this film things didn't end particularly well obviously River Phoenix died very young Corey Feldman has spoken extensively as an adult about the abuse he suffered within the Hollywood system Mm. and that has also seemingly fucked up his life and those ghosts are interesting in the way they haunt the film in that Chris River Phoenix's character disappears like he walks off and disappears because he's died yeah and Corey Feldman's character Teddy is the one who suffers abuse Mm. yeah so they, they really line up, which yeah. is even more kind of heartbreaking. Were you able to watch it without that added level of, oh, this is really tragic? No, I think the River Phoenix thing, I, to be, I didn't really think so much about Corey Feldman, to be honest, because I think I'd forgotten about that. But River Phoenix, I, found, I find it really hard to watch it and not be aware of the sort of extra layer of tragedy on it. And I think... When we when we talked about this yesterday, I said that I find it too like sentimental and too saccharine. And actually, I think saccharine is the wrong word. The tragedy of it is like it's sort of like almost overwhelmingly so for me. Like I can't. Mm. It's sort of too. It's too much and it's too sentimental for me. And I think that the River Phoenix thing does really play into that. But I think also sort of reflecting on it more, possibly because for me there's like the brother trauma thing, which mm. you know does obviously you think about it when you watch it and also like another sort of man dying young or whatever is Mm. i don't know maybe that kind of plays into it as well i don't know but yeah i find it i find the river phoenix thing like a bit distracting whereas i do not and i think that comes from having watched it so 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 many times before river phoenix died yeah i mean it is nostalgic and familiar for me in a way that meant that that doesn't intrude on it and you know Maybe that's just me being a bit a bit Vern, if I'm honest, a bit sort of blithe about it. I think it's what, interesting what you've said, Jen, about how it relates to almost like your childhood trauma. Mm. Your trauma as a young woman mm. is reflected in that and makes it a difficult watch for you because it's asking us all to look back. That's what the whole film does, like to, to look back. It, it encourages nostalgia. Yeah. yeah. And like I say, it's it's not looking back and saying, oh, the 50s were great. No. What it's looking back is and saying, in the 1950s, we didn't even think about what happened to kids when they were grieving. Vern's tragedy is that he's bullied because, you know, he, he's fat, which actually, you know, when you look at Jerry O'Connell, not, not really, not do you know what I mean? really, yeah. <laughs> Just a bit of baby fat. And they didn't talk about stuff like bullying and grief and abuse. And it just... Because the thing about Teddy being abused is everybody knows about it. This isn't a secret. Teddy is abused by his dad. Mm. Even the guy in the junkyard knows that. Yeah, yeah. And he's so protective and defensive of his dad, which just adds another layer of fucking heartbreak. So one of the things that I found like a bit... I don't know, I guess there's a lot of crying in this film. Like, those boys cry a lot. And I did sort of question a little bit how much 12-year-old boys would actually cry in front of each other in that way. Well, when Vern's crying and running, he is about to get hit by a train. That's fair, so yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. And Vern is kind of portrayed as the weakest of the four, mm. I suppose. Hard relate. Um, but also... <laughs> 
I think the friendship between Chris and Gordy is the friendship, right? Yeah. They are BFFs, but not F. Not the last F, because they lose touch as they get older. But they're best friends, and they do show their vulnerable side to each other. Mm. Whereas they, they don't cry in front of the other two which I think backs up what you're saying, but they maybe do have enough of a friendship. But they all that... cry. Like, Teddy cries at one point. They, and I was just like, obviously, growing up with two older brothers, it's just it just wasn't something that I recognise mm. in boys of that age. But I, I don't know. I don't know. They've all got plenty to cry about. Like, don't get me wrong. They've all got, like, fucking loads to cry about. I just, it just, I didn't recognise it as lifelike behaviour. I come from a family in which all of the emotion is demonstrated by the men and none of the emotion demonstrated by the women. Honest to God, my cousins, all of them, massive criers. You know, massive criers when we were growing up, Mm. all of the boys. Charlotte and I almost never cried. It's weird. Yeah, that that is unusual. Right, we could talk about this forever. And given that we spoke about it yesterday, yeah, we almost have. So (laughs) let's... (laughs) Let's just end with the question. Rated or dated? Rated. I didn't like it that much. I did find it a a difficult watch, but I don't I don't think it's dated and I, and obviously people think a lot of it, so you know. Rated. I I am with Mickey as in I would hedge it way less than Jen and just say rated. Now Jen, it's you next week, right? It is me next week. We are going to watch something that I think I've only watched once before, but obviously was a very, very big film at the time. And as you reminded me yesterday, it is <laughs> fucking long, which <laughs> so in a way I already regret my choice, but we're going to watch The English <laughs> Patient. Yeah, when you'd written on the schedule 1997 in brackets, I thought you'd put the like runtime on. <laughs> uh, right, I'm just going to sit and look at a picture of Willem Dafoe until that happens. Standard issue for all women.